0: Welcome to Discover Paediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Greve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. Welcome, Dr. Taryn Gabler. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Discover Paediatric Surgery. It's
1: my absolute pleasure.
0: Taryn is a paediatric surgical trainee in Johannesburg, about to write her final exams and uh, as a result she's well-prepared to verse us on hypertrophic pyloric stenosis today. So Taryn, let's dive straight in. What is hypertrophic pyloric stenosis?
1: So HPS is hyperplasia and hypertrophy of the pyloric muscle, and it's the uh, smooth muscle fibers of the circular layer, which increase in size and number. And that causes a narrowing of that pyloric channel, which then leads to gastric outlet obstruction.
0: All right, so how do these kids typically present?
1: A typical presentation is of, say, a white male um, neonate, generally somewhere between two weeks and two months, who's got a history of vomiting after his feeds that progresses. So it progresses all the way until they present with this non bilious projectile vomiting.
0: And w- what's the nature of these kids normally? I mean, I always remember them as being typically grumpy kids. Why, why are they so grumpy?
1: They're grumpy, not just because of the reflux that they get from this gastric outlet obstruction, but they're really hungry because they keep vomiting up all their feeds, and that's why they're so grumpy.
0: Yeah, I must say I'd be hungry if I vomited every time I ate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they call it hangry. Hangry. Mm. (laughs) Um, Taryn, we often get these kids confused with uh, kids that are having regular possets or possible reflux. How do we differentiate between the two? Is there a way to differentiate?
1: So I think, first of all, you've got to go back to basics. Look at first your history and then your clinical presentation. So if you've got a well-looking child who is thriving um, and the parents are describing that there's a little bit of almost dribble-like vomit that happens after a feed while they're busy burping the baby, that's far more likely to be just a positive or general reflux. When you've got a baby that the parents are talking about a progressive vomiting, um, that there's a projectile nature, that the child seems hungry all the time, there may, you know, depending on how late the presentation is, be a child who has lost weight, who is dehydrated. That's far more likely to be HPS related. And then of course, clinically as well, um, you know, if you're looking at the mild spectrum of reflux, you may see nothing at all. If you're looking at a severe case of reflux, the child may be posturing um, may reflux in front of you and you'll be able to see then the nature of the vomit or the nature of the regurgitation that is happening from that reflux. Um, And then clinically as well, looking for signs of HPS. So um, do they have an epigastric fullness? Do they have visible peristalsis on the stomach? Can you feel an olive on the abdomen?
0: Yeah, those are very useful symptoms and signs for us to keep a close eye on. Um, Sharon, what are the sort of implicated predisposing factors for developing hypertrophic pylorexidosis? I mean, you you suggested young males. Are there any other features that may be predisposing for HPS?
1: Yes, I mean, I think... We don't really know that much about the etiology of HPS and uh, a lot of it is, is anecdotal hearsay. There is some evidence to suggest it, but you can try broadly break things up into either a genetic basis or an environmental basis. Um, The reason we think that there's some sort of genetic component in the etiology is because we do see it more in white or Caucasian children compared to Africans or Asians. Um, It's far more common in male patients, more common in the firstborn um, boys and families. There's a much higher incidence if you have a positive family history, especially if your mother had HPS. There's almost a four times risk then of of, of having HPS in in your child. Um, And then some blood types are also more prone to HPS, like the B-type and the O-type. So we think that there is some genetic basis, we're not 100% sure what it is, but it looks like there's some sort of multifactorial threshold inheritance, so multiple interactive loci that then contribute to the picture of HPS.
0: Have there been any medications that have been implicated in HPS?
1: Yeah, so I think that's going over then onto your environmental leg, so looking at different things from the outside that also contribute to it. And as you mentioned, one of those are antibiotics like macrolides, and especially with erythromycin or azithromycin exposure. Um, the other things include types of feeding. So bottle feeding is said to have a higher um, risk of, of developing HPS. It's seasonal, so we see more cases in summer. Um, and some studies have also looked at transpyloric feeding of immature babies. So we know that they're a difficult group, right, because they're going to present a little bit later because they were prem. Mm. Um, but those babies who have been fed transpylorically in, in the neonatal units also have a higher risk of of developing HPS later on. Mm.
0: So, Taryn, you mentioned some of the clinical signs and symptoms that we can look for to help us make the diagnosis of HBS. You've mentioned uh, gastric fullness, uh, caterpillar or peristalsing in stomach, the stomach, palpating an olive. Can you maybe just take us through what's the best way to palpate an olive in this, in this age group of child? So
1: like you said, they're generally grumpy babies. <laughs> they're also generally quite hungry. But that hunger can help you in your examination. So the best way to feel an olive, and I think you know, an olive is something that maybe in the developing world we, we feel a lot more than they would overseas. And if you read overseas textbooks now, a lot of people don't feel an olive, even on table, um, because these kids are presenting earlier. But for us, that will make your diagnosis and you can go ahead straight away without wasting time on other investigations. Mm-hmm. So the best way to do that um, in our environment is to make sure that you've got a really calm and, and, and cooperative child, um, which sounds almost like an oxymoron when talking about neonates. But one mm-hmm. of the ways in which to do that is to keep the baby on the mother's lap, let the mom feed the child. So either a sham feed, just so like a, putting a pacifier or a dummy in the mouth, or by giving them a little bit of dextrose water to drink Um, and then keeping their legs up so that you keep the abdomen nice and soft. And then you really want to start with a a focused examination at um, the epigastrium. So the best way to do that is to stand on the left side of the patient using your left hand um, and you're going to take your fingers, feel for the edge of the liver, slip them underneath the liver and then roll your hands backwards towards the umbilicus. And you should then feel this olive, you should feel the rolling of the olive underneath your fingers um, and that'll help you make a diagnosis.
0: Yeah, So that's a great sort of pathognomonic sign for hypertrophic stenosis. Um, you mentioned that sometimes it's very difficult to feel this olive. What would be your investigation of choice if you had a clinical suspicion but couldn't confirm it, feeling an olive?
1: I think the, the sort of gold standard investigation that we have is going to be an ultrasound um, and that's for a number of reasons firstly I think it's sensitivity and specificity is much higher um, looking at the diameter and the length of the pylorus but also because it avoids other things that we don't like in neonates like radiation and contrast into a baby who we think has got gastric outlet obstruction so I would go for a sonar.
0: An ultrasound okay and what kind of numbers are we looking at that's that would be in keeping with hypertrophic stenosis? <laughs>
1: So I think that's also a little bit of a loaded question, and uh, you know it depends where you read. But I'm a bit of a simple person, so I try and remember something that is simple for me. And generally what I do is I, I think about it in terms of four. So a um, diameter or a thickness of the wall of four millimeters, um, a diameter of 14 millimeters, and then a length of four by four, which is 16 millimeters.
0: Okay, generally. yeah, it's a nice, easy way to remember it, yeah. So let's say you've made the diagnosis of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. are there any other investigations that you would do on this particular child?
1: Yeah, I think part of your workup of the child and part of your management of the child and more importantly part of the recess of the child is making sure that you've got your ducks in a row so you need to resuscitate this patient. One of the best ways to sort of gauge where you're starting and how you're improving is by doing a blood gas. I think that's probably one of the most important
0: things that I would ask for. What would, what would you expect to see on a blood gas in a kid with HPS?
1: These kids typically present with a hypochloremic, hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis. Um, Again, this is talking about kids who are sort of further on down the line. The earlier presenters may not have those electrolyte abnormalities. um, But certainly for a child who's a little bit further down the line, those are the the quintessential metabolic derangements that you're going to see.
0: All right. Can Can you take us through how they develop this metabolic picture?
1: Sure. So you need to look at the picture of HPS related to the vomiting. And the vomiting is really the... The basis for all of these derangements that you're going to see. So the vomiting itself is going to get rid of hydrogen and chloride with its hydrochloric acid that you are busy vomiting out, and and that's going to be your hydrogen that you're losing is going to cause an alkalosis, and the chloride that you lose is going to cause your um, hypochloremia. But then you have to realize that the vomiting also causes dehydration, and that dehydration works for the other factors. So what happens when you become dehydrated? you activate your renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which leads to uptake of sodium in the kidneys in order to try and give you that volume repletion. And in order to do that, it works on sodium-potassium exchange channels, and therefore you excreting potassium out. So that's what gives you your hypokalemia. But your hypokalemia is also... Um, A factor in worsening your alkalosis. Because what happens is generally you would imagine in an alkalotic environment, you're going to take all of your uh, potassium, it's going to move into the cells and hydrogen is going to move out. However, in this stage, because you've lost so much potassium, it actually overrides that. And you're taking hydrogen into the cells, losing potassium to the outside or trying to give potassium to the outside. So you're further increasing your loss of hydrogen ions, if you want to put it that way. You're losing hydrogen ions to the intracellular environment. When you lose these hydrogen ions to the intracellular environment, you also increase the acidity inside the cell. So what does that do in the kidney? Well, that stimulates more bicarb uptake because now the kidney cells are saying they've got too much acid, so now you need to take up more bicarbonate in order to, um, in order to balance um, that acid. And then finally, um, you've also got what gives you your paradoxical acid area, which I think is also an important point. And what happens there is that although you already have a very alkalotic um, environment inside and you would prefer to get rid of your hydrogen... I mean, you would prefer to take up your hydrogen ions... You've gotten to a point of hyperkalemia that is so problematic that the body will override those mechanisms and use your potassium-hydrogen exchanges in the kidney, thereby taking up potassium because of the critical hyperkalemia which it's reached and secreting hydrogen ions. And therefore you're actually losing hydrogen ions and you get this paradoxical acid area in a very alkalotic environment. So if you try and break it down so that you've got it... Sort of in a stepwise manner. The vomiting loses hydrogen ions, so you've got an alkalosis. You lose chloride, so you've got a hypochloremia. The dehydration needs to kidney mechanisms, which lose potassium, and that's why you have a hypokalemia. And then the other thing, or the last thing, that also contributes to the fact that you've got an alkalosis is the fact that you have this obstruction between the stomach and the duodenum. And usually when that stomach acid reaches the duodenum, it's Counteracted with bicarbonate um, juice that is secreted from the pancreas. Now, if you're not secreting that bicarbonate juice in order to neutralize the stomach acid that's coming through the pylorus, that bicarb is also backing up and staying within the system. So there's a number of mechanisms that increase your bicarb and help you lose hydrogen ions and thereby propagating the alkalosis.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good summary. I mean, it's a very complex interaction, as you say, and it's important to remember all those different levels and how they interact with one another. You know, on the basis of that, people often describe hypertrophic pyloric stenosis as an emergency. Do you agree with that statement?
1: Yes and no. (laughs) So from our point of view, from a surgical point of view, this is not a surgical emergency. You do not have to rush this child to theatre. But this is a medical emergency. And um, the resuscitation of these patients is incredibly important um, with their IV resuscitation and fluid resuscitation. This is a medical emergency and it needs to be treated as such.
0: So how do you suggest that uh, we embark on this emergency medical treatment for these patients? Do you think a nasogastric tube is important, IV, recess? Or what's your approach to these kids?
1: All right, so let's start with the nasogastric tube. It's a bit of a controversial topic. There are people who are for nasogastric tube placements and people who are against nas- nasogastric tube placements. Um, the thinking for nasogastric tube is that you've got a patient who is obstructed, you want to decompress that stomach, you don't want to have them at a risk of vomiting and aspirating. The people against nasogastric tube insertion will say that we're actually propagating this alkalosis because the more HCL that you drain out of the stomach, the more you're going to make, the more hydrogen and chloride you're going to lose, the more bicarb is going to back up in the system. Mm. But I think probably the best thing to do with a nasogastric tube is to be safe. So a lot of these patients with hypertrophic pyloric stenosis will be able to manage their own secretions and their gastric secretions. And I think as long as you've got a patient who isn't vomiting their secretions, you can safely resuscitate that patient without a nasogastric tube. If the patient in front of you is vomiting their secretions, then you have to be safe and place a nasogastric tube. It may take you a little bit longer with your fluid recess, but that patient will be better off not dying from an aspiration.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think playing it safe, is always more important than being in a big rush to correct your metabolic picture. Um, How would you suggest we go about correcting the metabolic picture?
1: So you've got to look at what type of patient is coming in. You know, if you were somewhere in a first world country, and this patient presented very early and had very little metabolic derangement. You sent him for a sonar, the sonar comes back suggestive of HPS. There's really not a lot for you to do. It may be that he's slightly alkalotic, um, he may need you know, one bolus of fluid with... He may even be acidotic, you know, that he's just in the beginning stages of his dehydration. He may need a fluid bolus, and then you can take him to theatre. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you've got these patients who are dehydrated, they are failing to thrive, and with their hypochloremic, hyperkalemic metabolic alkalosis. Now, oh, we've just mentioned how, um, you know, complicated that process is that gives you this metabolic derangement, and it's certainly not something that you want to fix too quickly. You don't want to throw fluid at the problem, but you do want to have a staged and managed resuscitation of these patients to get them within a reasonable amount of time. So usually you can resuscitate them within 12 to 48 hours, get them to the place where they need to be, and you can take them to theatre. The way that I do that is... um, if the patient comes in and I can see that they are dehydrated and that they are in shock, I will give them an IV bolus. There are people who say that normal saline is probably the best fluid to give. There's more recent literature that suggests that maybe you don't have to give normal saline. Um, you know, I think either one of the isotonic fluids, as long as it's an isotonic crystalloid, is good enough for, for that initial bolus, and I'll give that at 20 mL per kg. Subsequent to that, um, I'll start them on a 0.45 saline solution, so half normal saline. And to that, I'll add, make a 5% dextrose solution, so 100 moles of um, 50% dextrose water. And then on top of that, to add about 20 millimoles of potassium chloride. Some people will say that you need to prove that there is urine output before giving the potassium. And I, don't, I think that that's a safe way to, to manage these patients. But ultimately, all of these patients will be fluid behind to some extent, and there will be potassium behind to some extent. And we need to remember that that potassium that we're adding to something like half-normal saline is really essentially just a maintenance dose. Mm. So I think that it's not necessary to wait too long. I would rather start the resuscitation early. So all of my patients will get a 0.45 solution of normal saline with a 5% dextrose mix and the 20 millimoles of potassium chloride. Now I'll run that fluid usually at about 1.5 times the maintenance for that child because they do need extra fluid and they do need to flush the system to try and get things where they need to be. So I'll generally run at about 1.5 times the maintenance.
0: So, Taryn, we've heard about your fluid resuscitation for these patients. Are there any adjuncts that people have described to try and speed up this metabolic recovery?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there there has been a little bit of work done on using uh, proton pump inhibitors or H2 receptor antagonists um, in the resuscitation of patients with HPS, Um, there are one or two issues that we have with that. the, num- the first issue is that um, some of these studies, and there 's not many, um, are saying that a PPI will help you resuscitate a patient within twelve to forty eight hours, but essentially that's when you're going to resuscitate patients in any case, so i 'm not sure that that adds much to your resuscitation. Mm. The second thing in my mind is that if you are stopping acid production in the stomach, it's only one part of the problem. By the time that child has reached you with a hyperkalemic, hyperchloremic metabolic alkalosis, your problem is further down and it's now sitting at kidney level. So stopping the production of hydrochloric acid, I'm not sure, is going to change too much about your resuscitation or help it go a bit quicker. There has been a little bit more recent work... um, done looking at the use of PPIs to prevent HPS and that's based around the theory that um, you know, gastric acid can cause an acidic hyperplasia of the pylorus um, and in those cases um, prophylactic or empiric use if you will of PPIs may help prevent progression to HPS in high risk infants um, but again there's not, there's not too much that's been done on that.
0: Alright, so We always say that HPS is not a surgical emergency and that we need to fix these kids metabolically first. What's the harm in taking these kids to theatre too soon?
1: So I think the biggest thing is that... um you know, generally you're going to be working not with an immediate neonate. Yes, some of them are neonates, some of them are a little bit older. These are not necessarily patients who will need to go to ICU once you've metabolically corrected them. So now you've got a patient who you've metabolically corrected, they don't need ICU afterwards. Um, You really don't want to be in a position where you're dealing with an apneic patient post-op, and that's where you get Um, into having to correct your chloride and making sure that your alkalosis is is sorted out. And I had to do a bit of reading around this because I couldn't understand why we were always based on chloride levels. Why why do we need to know the chloride? And basically, it's just because it's a marker of your alkalosis. So your alkalosis is going to lag behind a little bit as you because the kidney has to come into place. It's going to lag behind your actual electrolytes. And once you've got an acceptable chloride level, you know that actually you've fixed your your, um, alkalosis. If you take an alkalotic baby to theatre, that baby is going to have some sort of respiratory depression in order to try and respiratory compensate for this metabolic alkalosis, and that respiratory depression, on top of anything else, anaesthetic agents, opioids, anything else that you've given in theatre, puts them at a very high risk for post-op apneas. So I think it's really important in these children because you take someone who or a child that um, you know is is in dire need of ICU when you can resuscitate them properly and have a child who can essentially have what we would now call a day case, go into theatre, have their operation, discharge 24 hours later.
0: Okay, so it's actually more important as a almost like a post-anesthetic prevention criteria. Yeah. Um, does potassium play any role in terms of anesthetic risks?
1: Potassium, especially if you are hypokalemic, um, certainly you'll have some element of cardiac instability, um, which is obviously something that is uh, that you don't that you don't want on table, um, and also just to keep in mind that there are other electrolytes that will go off in this in the greater scheme of things. You know, you'll get a hypermagnesemia, hypokalemia, and all of those things together with the hypokalemia um, make it a, a fairly unstable cardiac environment.
0: Okay, Taryn, maybe you can just summarize for us the. The levels that you would like on a venous blood gas, where it's safe to take a kid to theatre. All right.
1: So, I'd want a bicarb of less than twenty-eight, a chloride of more than ninety, a potassium of more than three point two, and a pH of less than seven point
0: five. Okay, those are very nice, clear indicators of when it's safe to then, you know, administer anesthetic for these particular kids. Um, let's say we're in theatre now. We're happy that the metabolic picture is resolved. Are there any steps that you do before actually starting the operation?
1: Yes, so before you start the operation, uh, and you know, and it's been practiced in, in our department, is that you always feel the stomach before you start. Um, you want to feel the abdomen, make sure that you can palpate an olive. Um, and we will generally say that if you can't palpate an olive, you need to go back to the drawing board and try and decide what it is that you're looking at here because it may very well not be HPS. Um, and I think that works very well for us here in the environment that we work in with the types of patients who present a little bit later. I'm not so sure that that is valid anymore in countries where they have very early presentation. Um, we know that they'll only feel an olive 75% of the time, which means they'll miss a quarter of their HPS if they use that tactic. But I think for, for us in our environment with the patients that we see, um, that's a really important step for us. So we'll palpate the abdomen first and look for an olive. The second thing that I would do um, while we're in theater is to make sure that there is an NG tube inside you and that we've drained the stomach as much as possible. Um, it's you know hard enough trying to find the olive. You really don't want to be fighting against a, a distended stomach.
0: Taryn, what are the surgical options available to us to treat hypertrophic stenosis?
1: You can break the surgical options up into two groups, and you can look at them broadly as either an open or a laparoscopic procedure. Um, between the two of them, the surgical principles remain the same. Um, and whether you do it open or laparoscopic is just the different way of getting to the pylorus. But it's it's the same operation. Um, and that operation is a Ramstead pyloromatomy.
0: Can you describe for us the steps or the principles behind the pyloromatomy?
1: Sure. So, I mean, regardless of how you get there, um, the main things that you want to do is you want to have a good visualization of your pylorus. You want to be able to stabilize it, so either with your instruments or between your thumb and your index finger if you're doing it open. You want to use sharp dissection, so a knife um, on the serosa of the pylorus. You're going to make a longitudinal incision that will extend from about 5 millimeters onto the the stomach itself, um, where you can see uh, your oblique fibers opening up, all the way down to the vein of mayo um, on the duodenal side and once you've made that serosal incision you want to use something blunt to open the muscle fibers or to spread the muscle fibers you don't want to use anything sharp and you don't want to go too deep at first so it's just a gentle um, blunt dissection opening those muscle fibers until you see pouting mucosa
0: all right what's so important about this vein of mayo that you mentioned
1: So the vein of Mayo is really the demarcation of where pylorus becomes duodenum. The pylorus is going to be very thickened and hypertrophied in these kids, so it's got a long way to go before you reach mucosa. The duodenum itself is still going to have a very thin wall, um, and once you go past that vein of Mayo, you put yourself in trouble of making holes in the mucosa itself.
0: All right, how how can we ensure once we split the pyloric muscles that, that we haven't made a hole in the mucosa?
1: The best, probably the easiest way to do this is to instill air into the stomach. You're looking at using probably about 60 to 100 moles of air that you're going to put into the stomach through an NG tube. Um, and you're going to insert that and, and look for it coming through the pilaris. And what, you want, what you're looking for is bubbles. So if you are seeing that there are bubbles coming up through that bucosa, you know that you've made a hole.
0: Okay, and you know, in the odd time where that happens, what are the options to treat that perforation?
1: So the first option is something that goes probably along the lines of, or along the principles of a graham patch like you would have used in adult surgery for an ulcer, um, where you close the mucosa with a suture and you patch a piece of momentum over that area, and that's a fairly acceptable way to, to um, fix the leak. If you can't do that, maybe you've got a very flimsy, non-existent piece of momentum or it's a little bit of a bigger hole. The other thing that you can do is basically just abort. So you close that uh, myotomy that you've made, turn the pilaris 180 degrees and do the exact same thing, but hopefully without a hole on the other side.
0: Okay, great. How do we know that the procedure has been effective? Are there ways to check intraoperatively?
1: So, one of the ways that you can check is if you use uh, instruments or your fingers, whichever way you're doing it, and is to move the two sides independently. So, if you've got um, both sides of your myotomy moving independently of each other, almost like a shoe shine maneuver, mm-hmm. um, if that happens, then you know that you've done an adequate myotomy.
0: Okay, great. Are we worried about bleeding in this operation?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, they can ooze. It's generally a venous ooze from the muscles. Um, you shouldn't chase it. Uh, if you chase the bleeding you're more likely to make holes in the mucosa you're more likely to make issues for yourself so don't trace the bleeding put the polaris back once that polaris is back in its anatomical position generally that bleeding will stop but it is something that you want to keep in mind post-operatively and just keep an eye on maybe do serial blood gases
0: okay so obviously mucosal perforation is one of the potential risks are there any other early complications that we need to keep an eye out for?
1: Yeah, so if you're looking at early complications, um, bleeding we've already mentioned, um, and then incomplete myotomy is another one, which hopefully you will sort out when you're in there, as long as you've done your Shushan manoeuvre and made sure that you've done a complete myotomy. Um, probably one of the most important early complications is vomiting. And these kids, in fact, 30 to 90% of them will vomit post-operatively in the immediate post-operative um, time. And that can be expected, and it's for a number of reasons. You know, there's still edema of the pylorus. There's still some hypertrophy. The gastric peristalsis hasn't quite gotten hold of the fact that it can now move through food through the pylorus yet. So there's a couple of reasons for why they would still have um, continued vomiting. But that generally will settle within a week post-operative. Um, and I think generally your guidelines are to continue feeding through that time period because it is, it is something that is expected post-op.
0: Okay. I mean, you mentioned feeding Do you have a particular feeding protocol that you adhere to?
1: I am a little bit more On the aggressive side um, And I do believe that breastfeeding lib or bottle feeding lib for that matter um, Is the best way uh, I think that like I said earlier I'm a, I'm a simple person So going through a protocolized um, Three hourly feed of dextrose And then going on to formula Low volumes and blah 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 um, Is a bit difficult for me And I think that Generally, children are very good and they regulate themselves. So for me, I would start ad-lib breastfeeding or bottle feeding six hours post-procedure. I'd feed through the vomiting and, yeah, take it from there.
0: Darren, we haven't spoken much about the alternative treatments for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. What are some of the other options if people don't want to undergo open surgery?
1: In some areas, people have started trying to use um, less invasive measures, so something like endoscopic um and balloon dilatation. The balloon dilatation hasn't been too successful. The endoscopic palorotomy, although um, you know, should be technically feasible and, and sound great. I mean, the same as you would do an endoscopic Heller's myotomy. Um, I don't think we're at the stage yet where this is this is common practice and we're using it. Um, so that those are less invasive options. And then the other option that you need to keep in mind is a medical option um, with the use of atropine. And the, the basis of using atropine as a medical therapy is that this pyloric stenosis that you've got is going to be transient in almost all cases. So if you can um, uh, support these babies through the period that the palaris is hypertrophied, then you can actually get them through and get them back to normal without ever having to do an operation. The problem with using atropine as um, as a therapy is that the children need to be on atropine for a very long time. So a lot of them will need four to six weeks of atropine treatment. Um, it's not something that you want to give. As an outpatient home, these children need to be in hospital. You need to monitor feeding. You need to be able to give them supportive feeding if they don't have, if they can't take orally as yet. Um, so it's a very labour-intensive and a very cost, uh, costly exercise, um, which is I think why we've moved away from doing it, especially when we've got such a such a good operation, such a good re- reducible operation.
0: What's the saying? Our surgeons like the surge. <laughs> well thank you Taryn I think it's been a very thorough overview of the topic of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis do you have any closing comments or thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with
1: yeah, I think, uh, you know, for HPS, it's just to keep in mind that it's, it's not an uncommon problem. You need to have a high index of suspicion, um, and you need to think about it when patients are presenting with reflux or, or positing that the, the family are becoming more and more worried about. Um, resuscitation is very important, and you need to look at the metabolic status of the child. Um, and then surgery is steadfast and simple, tried and tested.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Taryn, for taking the time and joining us.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me.
0: We look forward to the next episode on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.